Hello, everybody. This is Joseph P. Farrow with news and views from the Nefarium on Thursday, November 10th, 2016. This is after the American presidential, congressional, and several state elections and referendum, or pardon me, referenda, and people have been emailing me and messaging me like crazy, wanting me to give some sort of um, personal look at the results of the election, what I think was happening, what I think some of the implications domestically for the two major political parties here, now that we really have two major parties back <laughs> instead of one and a third, um, and what the geopolitical implications might be. So these, I, I've sketched out a few notes here. I didn't really prepare that much by way of attempting to look at various articles, break down numbers or demographics. I, I did watch the elections uh, on the New York Times online uh, site, uh, watched county by county, looked at some of the numbers and so on. And it was clear to me that we were witnessing a landslide, but I, I want to reserve some of my comments for specific issues later in this talk. But this is going to be very informal. I simply jotted down a few notes. This might be uh, somewhat longer, perhaps considerably longer than most of my news and views, which I try to limit to about 10 to 20 minutes. But uh, there was a lot going on in this election. And I think from my point of view, folks, um, to boil it all down, I think we have to boil it down to two issues. I don't think that this election was as much about the candidates as issues. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the issues that many voters on both sides of the political aisle in this country had, either with Donald Trump or with Hillary Clinton. Uh, most of the people I've talked to had much more severe issues with her than with him, with a few exceptions. But for the most part, people that at least I, I'm surrounded with, that I'm in day-to-day in -day contact with, were much more concerned about some major issues and the, the personalities of the two candidates really kind of only added fuel to the fire to that. So the two issues that I think were key here were that this wasn't so much an election as I've been arguing for the past few months. This was a referendum uh, in a very similar fashion to the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom, with the exception that here the stakes are for actual political office, or in the case of many states in this country, there were several referenda on state ballots around the country that also give kind of a clue uh, into the into the mood of the voters. So this was a referendum. That's the way I've been looking at it. And if we look closely at the way that the primaries in, in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party proceeded, uh, it became very clear with early on with the candidacy of Senator Sanders, to my mind, that this was a revolt within the Democratic Party, particularly on, among younger voters against the Democratic Party elite, which, as far as I'm concerned, folks, is pretty much the same as the Republican Party elite. Uh, this, was, this was an anti-globalist referendum. And Donald Trump certainly made this an issue in his candidacy very, very early on. 
So this was a revolt against the party elites that have basically been pursuing a policy. And please let us note here, friends, a policy of centralizing global government, a kind of global oligarchical dictatorship run by corporations. And the problem here is we have no record in human history of such a project ever being a success, all right? Unless you want to believe the actual details of some ancient texts, you know, Nimrod and the Tower of Babel or uh, Upnapishtim and, and some of the Mesopotamian lore and so on. And even there, the project didn't turn out too well. So in other words, we have no record in, in human history where this kind of system has been successful. And this has been the policy that, I, as I like to call them, both the dummy crooks and thugs or the Democrats and Republican elites have been pursuing ever since the administration of George Bush the first. All right. Uh, we saw the last kind of resistance to that kind of globalism collapse when Nixon was forced to resign because of course, of course he was uh, opposed to the general agreement on tariffs and trades or GATT as it was then called. That was kind of the first plank on the road to globalism. So as far as I'm concerned, both Senator Sanders and Mr. Trump, or now President-elect Trump, were articulating for both sides of the aisle a, a dissatisfaction with the track record of this policy, which has been more or less the policy that has been pursued by both political parties and the leadership of this country in the last 30 years. And I think this may explain part of the reason why you saw many of the Sanders supporters and many Democrats um, cross over. I've, I've had some uh, emails from a few of them cross over and vote Republican. Some, uh, one individual even told me that uh, this was the first time he'd ever done that in his life, and it felt good. Well, I think the reason it felt good was not so much because you're voting for the Republicans, because let's face it, folks, they are as deeply entrenched in globalism as are the Democratic elite, all right? I think what felt good was you're voting against that whole concept rather than uh, for the party as such. That certainly uh, is the way I look at it. So I think this was a referendum, just as Trump actually made it a part of his campaign. Globalism, not, or pardon me, nationalism, not globalism, will be our credo, all right? He said this over and over again. And I think that, in part, is what this was really all about. But the second thing I think about that that the, that kind of is a spinoff of what this may have been in terms of looking at it as a referendum is it was a referendum not only on globalism versus national and cultural sovereignty. It was it was a referendum on the American quote unquote mainstream media, and we're going to be getting back to that term in a moment here. Uh, it was a referendum uh, on the mainstream media and how involved they are in spite of their attempt to look like they're simply reporting the news. It was obvious during this campaign, particularly after Trump secured the Republican nomination and Hillary secured the Democratic nomination. It was obvious uh, from the outset that the media was heavily biased in her favor. Um, Yes, I'm one of those that does think that some of the debate moderators and people around the debate moderators were, were funneling questions to Hillary Clinton back and forth. I do believe there was fraud or at least cheating in that sense, and there has been evidence of a, of a great deal of fraud. But 
the mainstream media we saw was skewing polls by heavily weighting their Democratic sampling, which, of course, is going to weight the poll in favor of Hillary Clinton. Uh, we saw people, uh, mainstream anchors in this country. I, I saw them on YouTube. I don't have my cable hooked up. And, you know, I gave them about 30 seconds. And it was like they were getting their knickers in a twist and having their own little sob pout session uh, in the corner. So this was a referendum on the mainstream media. And I want to address that term now because the other thing that is evident from this election, this referendum, is that their viewership has tanked. If you have been following the alternative media, any of the sites that are out there in the alternative media, their viewership is extraordinarily way up. There's no other no other way I can that I can put this. And the so-called mainstream media leadership, or pardon me, viewership is way way down. And I think this is an indication that. This whole election has also been about a third issue, and that's rule of law and fairness. Uh, they have squandered their trust trying to coronate this this Harridan into the presidency. And, of course, by squandering their trust, I think ultimately they are going to go the way of the dodo bird. And quite frankly, I think we have to make sure that they go the way of the dodo bird. We'll be getting back to, to that in a few minutes. So now I've mentioned election fraud, and I want to turn to this issue because I have been watching, as I said, the New York Times website. And the last time I checked, which was this morning, they still had not called New Hampshire, uh, where Mrs. Clinton was leading, and Michigan, where Mr. Trump was leading, and Arizona again, which I think Mr. Trump was, was leading by a few percentage points. Uh, they still have not called this. And I suspect it is because they are trying to finagle some way to retain some sort of, of representation, to save some sort of face for not having had a complete blowout of, of their candidate and their party and their party platform and agenda. I think that, again, has to be looked at. Um, the, the funny thing is that right now, it appears, at least according, again, to the New York Times, it appears that the Republicans have retained a very thin, razor-thin, uh, one-vote majority in the U.S. Senate, a very large majority in the United States House of Representatives, and they've captured the, the uh, White House. This means, of course, that this would be the first election since 1928. Since any, And what does that tell you about election fraud, guys? since 1928, where any Republican candidate has done this, all right? Now, it's absolutely essential for, for the Democrats to, to retain control of the Senate or get it back because they want to make sure to block any Supreme Court and also federal justice appointments. Uh, this is crucial for them. And to lose that really, really puts a long-term dent in their strategic plans, which is to further socialize, radicalize the country and move it to the left. And I'm not going to make any bones about that. That's been their agenda all along. And, and to take aim at certain uh, amendments in the Bill of Rights to the U.S. Constitution, particularly the first and second free speech, 
Uh, they've tried to kill this by political correctness and a bunch of other tricks and shenanigans. And of course, the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms. So in other words, I think they are looking for some way to pull something good out of this election result. And they're, they're going to try and do it by manipulating numbers and then perhaps contesting these two remaining states to see if they can they can somehow retain some semblance of, of control or at least influence in the United States Senate. I think this is why they have not called these states. Uh, it looks to me, however, from looking at the numbers that the Times itself has published, that uh, there's, with so many precincts now reporting, that that there can't be a makeup. Now, uh, the, the problem of, of voter fraud here is also you're going to hear from the political left that the popular vote went to Hillary Clinton. Well, folks, the only reason the popular vote went to Hillary Clinton is because of the California problem. California is already so uh, whiny and pouty that there are people in California that want to secede, as far as I'm concerned, fine, leave, <laughs> okay, leave the rest of the country. If you want to know what the country will look like under uh, a single-party, Democratic Party-ruled system, look at California. It's a mess. People that live there will tell you it's a mess. They've destroyed their agriculture in the name of nuttiness, quite frankly. Um, California is a mess. Now, I strongly suspect, and I've heard stories Although I have not, I want to stress this here, I have not been able to confirm these stories. But I have heard stories that even in California, there were places, there were precincts that were resorting to a heavy bit of voter intimidation and voter fraud. And that is an indication that the race may have been much closer, even in California, than the political left in this country wants to admit. Now, as for the rest of the country, prior, I don't know about you, those of you in Europe, but on the alternative media in this country, there were numerous reports of various places around the country where votes were being flipped. If you voted for Donald Trump, the machine would flip your vote into the Hillary Clinton column, and there were people actually taking videos of this happening. Now, <clears throat> pardon me. Some of these places where this was happening or being reported are, to my mind, very interesting because one of the places where this was being reported was Pennsylvania, another state that supposedly, like California, is supposed to be a solid lock for the Democrats. And the places where this vote flipping was occurring were precisely in the counties in Pennsylvania, where supposedly, again, the Democrats were supposed to have a lock on the vote. So that tells me right there, my friends, and I, I'm going to put this opinion out there. I have not sat down like a political analyst would and looked in, at numbers and crunch numbers. So this is more like an intuitive guess than a an actual political analysis. But my my guess here is that if these stories were in fact true, and I think they are, that this means that you you had an even bigger blowout against Hillary than than they want to admit. So they're now again they're trying to save face. I think now the fraud at least boils down to they're trying to save face and make it look like well she really won the popular vote, 
the the electoral college is just this uh, founding father 18th century thing. Well, yeah, it's to protect the smaller states like the one I live in from de being dominated by a bunch of nuts in, in the cities out in California. Uh, you know, go your way, but leave us alone. I think this is, this is an indicator of some of these reports about uh, fraud is an indicator of just how massive the vote against her was. And of course, there were all, there's also the issue of busing people around to different precincts. We've heard reports of that. That is massive fraud. We've heard of reports, of course, of allowing people that aren't even citizens to vote. And again, like it or not, folks, this has been what the Democratic Party has been promoting for a very, very long time. They need that poor, uh, disenfranchised vote to keep their power. And this was something I think that was, was in evidence. I call it the California problem. Now, we know that there was massive fraud in California just from the fact that they had literally to steal that state from Senator Sanders and put it in the Hillary Clinton column. So in other words, Cal there's a California problem, and the California problem is that there's massive voter fraud. I have never thought that people in California are as crazy as, as they're made out to be, and that they keep voting for these crazy Democrat candidates. I think there's massive voter fraud and corruption on a statewide level, think of Chicago, think of Cook County, Illinois, and magnify it to the state level, that's the problem. So in other words, this issue of voter fraud, I think is across the board, is one of the first issues that we are going to have to keep on the table and keep talking about and keep driving in the alternative media. Because it is clear that there is something going on in this election. There is voter fraud. Most of it is on the Clinton side. I don't doubt for a moment that there's probably some of it on the Trump side. But the real problem here is, folks, we need transparency in these elections. We need paper ballots. We need states to keep records of how the votes were recorded. And they need to be accessible to examination and scrutiny to the public across the board, statewide. So we need to pass, in my opinion, I think Mr. Trump, the first thing that he needs to do in his 100 days or whatever it is you want to call it, I think, number one, he needs to issue an executive order and pass a bill through Congress. He's got Congress making it absolutely illegal for any state to deny or destroy its election records for a particular election for a period of not less than 10 to 20 years to keep those records so that both political parties and their leadership and the citizenry of the country have the opportunity to review the election results. And those results need to be published in the papers and on the internet and on government websites on a state-by-state, county-by-county level, including the Electoral College. That's what needs to be done. No more opportunity for voting fraud. No more of what we've seen going on, the chicanery in favor of Hillary Clinton, against Senator Sanders, and against Mr. Trump. No more. All right, that's, that's the issue of voter fraud. Now, what, what, what does the future hold? Well, I know what it would have held with uh, Hillary Clinton, and that probably would have been war with Russia. 
<laughs> Thank goodness she didn't get in there. But, you know, before the election took place, folks, I saw this political cartoon. Somebody had sent me this, and I had to, get, I had to chuckle because it was kind of the way I felt. And I know it's, a lot, it's, it's the way a lot of you felt. You know, the, it was a game of Russian roulette, and it was the American people playing, playing the game of Russian roulette. And the Hillary Clinton revolver had the magazine completely full. <laughs> you had to pull the trigger and shoot yourself. The, the Donald Trump revolver magazine was half full, you know? So, you know, not much of a choice there, folks, but pretty much a clear choice. So this, this leads me to, to, you know, what, what does he do now to keep this movement going and to, to move the country out of this global oniest, let's ship all of our jobs overseas. Please note folks, that Pennsylvania, one of the states where there was where there were reports of heavy voting fraud, went clearly for Trump, and it's the first time since I think Ronald Reagan that Pennsylvania has been in the Republican corner. And the reason why is that he went there, he went to Michigan, he went to Ohio, and so on, and came right out and said, "We've got to quit shipping our jobs overseas." We need to bring the manufacturing and the corporations back to these shores and put our people back to work. We need to take the environmental uh, stupidity that we've that we've seen under Obama of in the name of the environment, throwing people out of work and then doing nothing for them. Okay, we need to end this. Um, and folks. I'm sorry, I'm not on the overpopulation climate change crowd. I'm just not. I question the science. There are enough reports out there on the inter Internet that the science of climate change is dubious at best. The overpopulation argument has been advanced since the Republic of Venice, folks. That's what these elites, these oligarchs do. So I'm not buying the left-wing agenda there. Do I want to protect the environment? Sure. But I want to do it in a logical, rational way that doesn't throw people out of their livelihood and, and give them no future and no hope. And Trump played directly to that. Now, that means he's going to have to deliver. All right. So let's address some of the issues that I think he's kind of hinting at here, what I think he may be hinting at. And nevertheless, even if he isn't hinting, we've got to hold his feet to the fire. Because this was not simply a, an ad hoc affair here, folks. This is what I really want to drive home to you. We need to remember that this movement, this wellspring against the elites of both political parties, particularly the Republicans, because they're supposed to be the party of opposition, and they really haven't been very good at opposing much, have they? All right? So you've seen this movement building with Ron Paul for a number of years, all right? I think you're looking at the same movement, just a different candidate. But the unique thing here is, is that Trump has been able to get the people in the Democratic Party that pretty much think and feel the same way. They've been basically abandoned by their party elites uh, on things like abortion, if you think that that all Democrats are pro-abortion, 
No, not all of them are, folks, but their leadership is. They've been abandoned by their party leadership on the issue of free trade, you know, globalization, losing their jobs, and on and on this goes. It cuts across both party lines. That's why I said earlier we have 1.3 political parties here. Now we've got two back, all right? And the thing about Trump is he's pulled what used to be called the Reagan Democrats or the Yellow Dog Democrats back into the Republican tent for a moment. The the trick is going to be to make this political realignment, whether it roots itself in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, I frankly don't care, all right? But the real trick is going to be to root this movement so that this is not simply another hiccup like Ron Paul or and remember Donald Trump in 2016, but becomes a permanent feature of the cultural and political landscape. This, I think, is really what Trump was signaling in his uh, acceptance speech on, on Wednesday morning. So let's look at some of the issues that he articulated and some of the issues that I think he could articulate that would be appealing to people across both political uh, parties, all right? This this kind of uh, pro-nationalist, uh, anti-globalist revolt. I don't want to use populism because that's, that's kind of a meaningless term that the political left, that really the elite likes to use to smear anybody that disagrees with them, all right? It's like their use of the term misogynist, racist, sexist, homophobe, Islamophobe, xenophobe, you know, this is their term of choice when they want to attack someone that disagrees with them. So the first thing that you'll notice that Mr. Trump said was he wants to rebuild the infrastructure, all right? And I think most of us are pretty well familiar with the fact that the infrastructure of this country is crumbling, all right? But I think this is one area President Obama uh, attempted to do this. Uh, There was a little work in my state around where I live on the interstate system, but, you know, nothing like what the country needs. It needs a national program. The other thing that Mr. Trump articulated during his campaign was he, he wants to, I think he's genuine in this, we'll see, but he at least stated that he wants to help the inner cities and particularly the inner city poor, which for the most part in this country tend to be black, but not exclusively. Now, I think what Trump is thinking here is we can solve the gang problem in the inner cities. We can solve the drug problem and we can fix the infrastructure problem by putting those people at work, giving them a job and a steady income and rebuilding the infrastructure in this country particularly in their neighborhoods where they live. So, yes, I think, I think he's, he's been articulating a strategy, at least to my mind, if we listen and pay attention carefully. Now, obviously the political elites of both parties are not going to let him do this, even though he apparently does have coattails big enough to, to make this pretty much a clean sweep in spite of all of the attempts and chicanery, dirty tricks, and election fraud that were tried against him, I think you're going to see the Republican leadership in cahoots with the Democratic leadership try to block almost everything he does, and we need to hold their feet to the fire. However, there's a ray of sunshine here because I was I was looking at the county-by-county county map in Kentucky, 
which is, of course, the home of, of Senator Mitch Flannelmouth McConnell, the Senate Republican majority leader. And almost all every county in Kentucky went solidly for Trump. That's a huge message to him. And even in Wisconsin, you find some places that were strongly pro-Trump. Pro so a, a, a less strong message to uh, Speaker Ryan. But again, I think they are going to try to make life difficult for him. This is where we hold their feet to the fire. All right. We, we block them from doing it. We flood them with emails, phone calls. And most importantly, we drive the discussion. This is where each of you now is hugely important. This is where each of you, by emailing the alternative news outlets and centers with your ideas, with your encouragement, and, and how we should proceed is going to be hugely important. You're all a part of this now, whether you are a Republican or Democrat. All right. Now, I think the long-term goal here that Mr. Trump is really articulating is not only do we have to take the inner cities back, but we have to take them back from the democratic machines. Otherwise, this country is headed for real, real upheaval. If you look at the county by county maps, and for those of you in Europe, this is particularly important for you to understand. If you look at the county by county maps of the past few presidential elections, say go back two decades, it becomes abundantly clear that the democratic base of power is in the cities and particularly among the inner city poor. For the most part, the rest of the country cannot stand them or their policies because it has kept those people down. It's given us political correctness. It's given us a bunch of whiny, entitled students that cannot even take a midterm exact examination after an election that they lost. It's given us whiny, pouty teachers that don't want to teach history anymore because Donald Trump won. All right. This is the problem. So I want, I want to make it very, very clear. Excuse me. I'm getting someone trying to call me on something and I can't take a call right now. Uh, hang on folks. Someone is just, uh, someone is trying to call. All right. Let me get back to here. All right. Now the, the problem here is we have to now take these issues and drive them into the discussion. We've seen a virtual collapse of the mainstream media. We now have an opportunity with the alternative media to send emails and our ideas. Who cares if they're rejected? If they simply get discussed and talked about, this is going to drive the agenda. And the strategy here, folks, if you stop and think about it, is the following. We've been dealing with people that want to centralize everything. They want to run your health care. They want to tell you what vaccines you must take. In other words, this, the, the counter to this is to hit them where they live. The, the key to countering centralizers is to respond with solutions that are decentralized and create so many fronts that they have to address that they cannot address them all and they're going to lose some. That, incidentally, has been the strategy of the left for the past 100 years, and it's been pretty successful. Now we've got to do it. Here's what I think we should do. 
Number one, there's a phenomenon that if you Google it, uh, Catherine Fitz and John Rappaport and I talked about this uh, at some length in, in a recent interview about the elections. The, the phenomenon of urban farming, people growing their own food on vacant lots or in buildings in the inner cities. And in some cases, they're making their own money. We need to promote not only that, but we need to promote it and, and other ideas so that people have good food, can do and run a business, sell their food, and have a stake in their community. Keeping poor people, I don't care if you're black or white or whatever, purple polka dotted, keeping them on the democratic welfare plantation has ruined this country. The war on poverty has cost us, since Lyndon Johnson invented it, I think over two, 22, something like that, trillion dollars, and it's done nothing. So we need to come up with solutions where people can, can have businesses like this. And trust me, the corporations like Monsanto are going to hate that because people are not going to be buying their GMO foods and seeds. However, if there were a little urban farming going on where I live, you betcha I'd be buying their non-GMO produce, and they'd be making money. So we need to have ideas like that that will help the inner cities get off of the plantation and have a future for themselves and their children. All right, number two. This means that they're going to take the cities back. I think this is the long-term objective of Trump when he says infrastructure, and then he's talking in another place about we need to do something with the inner cities and help these poor people. Well, yeah, we do, because if they go down, we all go down. So I think, yes, this is the type of thing that we need to do, and the long-term goal is to take the cities back from the democratic machines that are only going to keep them in their place, which is poor. All right? Now, the next thing I think needs to be done is Trump needs to address and address now and he needs to make a point of, of addressing after the inauguration. He needs to address teachers and teachers' unions and say something to the effect, and, and John Rappaport brought this out when, when we were doing the interview uh, with Catherine Fitz. I just want to let you teach, let you choose your own textbook that you don't have to buy and the government doesn't have to buy from these big corporations and Common Core is an assault on the teachers' unions. And in my opinion, folks, Common Core is an assault on the teachers' unions. They want to reduce teachers to robots. In the state where I live, we just had a referendum, another referendum about fixing education, and guess what the solution was? Spend more money to hire more administrators and boost their salary, and not one dime is going to get to the teacher, all right? for a teacher's salary, to hire good teachers and let them alone and do what they need to do to teach their subject. So this is the other area I think that that they, not just Mr. Trump, but, but the leadership needs to go is directly to the teachers' unions and say, we're for you and we're for your freedom and independence in the classroom. We're, we're bolting from Common Core. Why? Common Core is another centralized solution. 
And once you start that, that trend going in education away from the centralization, away from these kooky standardized tests and so on and so forth, I think you're going to see a big, huge education turnaround and you're going to see much less waste of money on silly people called administrators that make life miserable for teachers. All right. That's the second thing I think needs to be done. Third thing. This is the other meme. Again, I'm, I'm talking about memes here that need to be driven into the discussion. All right. And driven by way of constantly suggesting these things to the alternative media outlet and get people talking about them and create a conversation on multi fronts on several issues that are moving faster than the global centralizers can respond to. Do you follow me? So here's another issue you might want to think about driving into the conversation and making part of the political domestic agenda, and that's called health freedom. Let's stop and think about it. Health freedom means you have the right to your own body. You have the right to decline poisonous vaccines that haven't been tested, that Big Pharma wants to force you to take, or your children. And now the evidence is very clear, in my opinion, that there is a link between all of these vaccine cocktails that are given to tiny infants and young children and autism. And that's another way of harvesting your personal wealth is to keep you sick and have the government paying the insurance companies out of your taxes to help your children. So health freedom. And that's the way you drive the agenda against this monstrosity that is eating all of our paychecks alive called Obamacare, health freedom. Drive the meme into the discussion. Now, this brings me to the first 100 days. What, does, what, what would you do if you were President Trump? Well, first of all, I think he needs to overturn several Obama executive uh, orders. That's the first thing. Draw up a list. The ones he doesn't like, get rid of, particularly the ones uh, concerning speech, gun control, and so on. But the, the thing I really want you to concentrate on here is we have to watch who he's appointing. He needs to bring, he, he obviously, in order to govern, is going to have to have people familiar with the federal bureaucracies in places of not cabinet-level positions, but positions where the bureaucracy can continue to function. But we have to watch his cabinet and sub-cabinet level positions very carefully. He cannot make a clean sweep of putting nothing but neocons, be they Democrats or Republicans, back into those positions and expect to carry any sort of agenda that represents his, his base forward. Remember, this is a revolt against globalism. This is a revolt against a controlled mainstream media living in a bubble reality, a virtual reality. This is a revolt against the loss of jobs and free trade agreements that have done nothing but create the loss of jobs. So in other words, this is a problem. We're going to have to watch his appointments. And again, that is something that needs to be done by driving the discussion in the alternative media. Now, the key here is not to be overreacting. If he appoints somebody from Chase Manhattan or something to a post within the, the Treasury, doesn't mean he's sold out, folks. It doesn't mean that. It means you have to look at the tapestry of his appointments, 
very carefully. It's not this individual or that individual. It's the pattern that you see emerging. That's the key thing. All right. The next thing he has to do, I think, in order to keep the base that he's built of disaffected Republicans and Democrats that has swept him into this, this referendum landslide change, he must insist and carry through on his promise that he made that if I were president, you'd be in jail. I'm not saying he needs to go after Hillary Clinton, although I would sincerely wish that he did, quite frankly. And Bill and the foundation open up that whole cesspool because that cesspool is also going to lead back to the Republican elites. Make no mistake about that. That's why they're really scared. That's why the panic to get her elected because it wasn't just about the Clintons protecting the Clintons. It was about the mafia protecting the mafia because they're all involved with each other and enough enough pulling on that thread will unwind a lot of uh, malfeasance and racketeering and so on. So I think he has to restore confidence in the rule of law in this country and in the federal government institutions and in particular the Department of Justice, which has been badly politicized under Obama, under the previous Bush administration, and under the previous Clinton administration. In other words, we're dealing here with corruption, and frankly, under the Reagan administration, too. Let's not forget the Inslaw scandal here, folks. So in other words, I think he has to, absolutely has to insist on the resignations of Lynch and Comey in, in, uh, in the Department of Justice and in the FBI. And he needs to put people in there that are going to pursue this investigation to the point of indictments in grand juries or getting a special prosecutor. But let's take it through the normal process of indictments in the grand juries and hold these people accountable. And that includes, let me be very clear here, that has to include someone very significant. I was appalled, to be quite frank with you. When Hillary Clinton called me a part of the basket of deplorables, consider what she did. She lumped blacks, Hispanics, women, the old, the young, whites, men, you name it, almost every group she targeted in that statement. And I think that statement had a lot to do with her defeat. Because what it does, what it signaled was, we on the left can only think in terms of the collective. And if you and your demographic group disagree with our expert opinion on what we need to do, well then, shame on you. We're going to shame you to our side. But the real referendum here was about abstract collectives versus individual freedom. All right, that was the, that was the real hidden issue here. So the other thing that she needs to do, I, I was watching the, the rhetoric, and as it always happens during a presidential campaign, the rhetoric on both sides gets over the top. I watched the, the mainstream media go after Mr. Trump for the fact that David Duke and a bunch of other extreme right-wing kooks in this country, and let's face it, bigots and, and racists in this country, were 
being uh, he was being attacked because they had endorsed him. Now, stop and think for a moment, folks. Donald Trump would not have gone out and sought an endorsement from anybody like that any more than Hillary Clinton's or Bernie Sanders sought the endorsement of the American Communist Party. But the real problem here that I had with all of this over-the-top rhetoric is that there is a certain very wealthy billionaire who has taken a special delight in using his financial power to interfere in the domestic politics of other countries to create chaos and habit, to ruin other countries' currencies, and to unleash civil unrest and violence in this country. And that man, by his own admission, supported and collaborated with the Nazis against his own people during World War II. And he and Hillary Clinton were never called to account for this. They must be. They must be. Now, in talking about this election as a referendum on globalism versus national sovereignty, national culture, on individual freedom versus the abstract collectives of the left, on the, the, main, the so-called mainstream media and their clear and apparent bias against anything that represents individual freedom, their clear disdain and dislike of people, you know, people in the flyover country. Um, I think this has geopolitical consequences, and these are the consequences, quite frankly, that most intrigue me. Because I think, first of all, you noticed a sudden sea change after the election. It was very palpable in this country. Probably, if you're in Europe, it was palpable there. It was like, wow, we dodged the bullet of a war with Russia, <laughs> okay? And it was very interesting that Mr. Trump made a statement at some point during the campaign that if he was elected, one of the first things he wants to do is establish some sort of direct contact with Mr. Putin to see if we can diffuse this situation a bit. Now, Mr. Trump is stepping into a position, I want everybody to understand here, Mr. Trump is stepping into a position where he has already been weakened in any negotiating stance by the policies of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in the Middle East and, and this, this support of, of radical Islam. All right. I think he's stepping into any negotiating position now with a weak hand. But he's at least willing to talk to Russia, and that's a lot better than saying and, and ramping up the war rhetoric, you know, we're going to get tough with you and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that negotiation posture has to firmly address the fact that the United States has a hand of major culpability in the mess in the Ukraine, that it has had a hand of major culpability in the Middle East. But other countries countries that Russia has supported have as well. So the first step I would urge Mr. Trump to take is clear up the business on the Ukraine and admit that the United States really doesn't ha have a legitimate national security interest in, in a, a satellite Ukraine for the West. All right. Let's let the Ukraine be genuinely free, run its affairs, and I don't think Russia would have any trouble with that. Russia has a problem of installing extreme right-wing groups in Kiev, 
and calling it freedom. And we've got to admit this. I think that's a first step. It's not the only one. All right. The losers in the election on the world stage, and I was watching other countries and who they would have voted for. Someone did a, a poll of who would the countries vote for. Well, South America, believe it or not, went solidly Trump. Europe, to my surprise, went solidly Trump. Russia, of course, did. There were some places that went Hillary, all right? But, but it's interesting to me because this referendum result, in my opinion, puts uh, uh, Francois Hollande and Angela Merkel now on the hot seat because their policies are more or less identical to the neocon policies that we've seen represented in Washington, D.C. by the Bush administrations, the Clinton administration, the second Bush administration, and then the Obama administration. Uh, they are simply representing the same sorts of policies, particularly with respect to the issue of national sovereignty and culture, the, the so-called migrant crisis. This is going to be a big boost to parties of uh, addressing these issues like Marine Le Pen in France, Carrot Wilders in the Netherlands, and the AFD parties in Germany. And in fact, I thought it was very interesting, folks, as the, as the election day was occurring, I saw an article that the German interior minister is simply defying Angela Merkel's policies and not admitting any more refugees into Germany. So in other words, the revolt is now taking place within Merkel's uh, coalition government. I think this is going to be a huge influence now on European politics. Let's remember uh, Monsieur Hollande in France is facing French national presidential elections next year. And I think this puts him in the hot seat. Angela Merkel, bless her heart, she couldn't be more clueless. She's now playing the Russia is going to try and hack our elections card. Well, Angela, it didn't work out too well for your sister across the pond. All right. You're living in an unreal world. Get back to reality. Stand up for your own people. Quit this global baloney nonsense and start thinking in terms of reality. But I do think this election is going to have a huge consequence in Europe. I think it's going to give strength and fuel to those movements of, of revolt against this global loney agenda that they've been living under and the ruination of their own economies. All right. Now, uh, the fourth point, I think, geopolitically, that this is going to have the hugest impact on is in the Pacific. And since we're talking about Mr. Trump's agenda of infrastructure, one of the other world leaders that contacted uh, President-elect Trump very shortly after he finally gave his victory speech was not just President Putin, but it was Prime Minister Abe in Japan. And Abe did something very, very interesting that I thought this is a signal to watch. He insisted that, first of all, Japan remains a firm U.S. ally. But I think Mr. Abe's goal now is that he's been listening to the signals that Trump has been dropping about fixing the infrastructure in this country because 
if if Mr. Trump wants, as he said, not only to fix the roads and bridges, but to have good quality airports, I think he's also thinking in terms of the rail networks here, folks. A natural country that you're going to turn to for investment opportunity, for expertise, for assistance in this is going to be Japan. And that will strengthen Japan's hand immensely and at the same time accomplish a goal of making sure China doesn't grow too big in the Pacific Rim. All right. So I think Trump may be thinking or perhaps his advisors may be thinking along these lines. I can I can just bet my bottom dollar that they're thinking along these lines in Tokyo. All right. So we're going to have to watch. Uh, American and Japanese relations very carefully. This is going to be in in the area of investments and so on and so forth. The other country I think to watch now in the Pacific and to watch particularly with how Mr. Trump may deal with the Pacific over the next four years is going to be Indonesia because this has been another country where a lot of American jobs have gone. However, Indonesia is an up-and-coming economy it needs its own infrastructure upgraded and so on. I think you're going to see some sort of relationships now developing between the USA and Indonesia that might change the game a bit in the Pacific. I think Mr. Trump, by a similar token, is probably not going to like the rhetoric of, of uh, the Philippine president, Mr. Duterte. But I think in a certain sense... Duterte's rhetoric helps Trump in addressing what he also wants to address, and that's the overuse and extension of NATO. NATO is going to have to be completely revisited, if not canned, and he's picking up on the Ron Paul meme there, guys. I hope you noticed that. So in other words, I think you're going to see revisiting of, of NATO, and I think you're going to see an attempt to use the opposition now that's growing to to American unipolarism in a positive way. That remains to be seen, but that's kind of my guess on what happens. Now, to sum all this up, what we have to do now is generate ideas, get those ideas circulated, generate solutions for local and, and state and regional level fixes, all right? create several several fronts of practical ideas, drive them into the alternative media. Remember, the alternative media had ratings that were way beyond the, the major national lamestream media networks, which brings me to my final point. I think that this was, was definitely a referendum about the media, particularly in this country. I think now is the time that we have to drive the linguistic agenda and we have to drive it deliberately and with very, very careful thought. We need to rename, hear me now, we need to rename the alternative media with a new name that cannot allow it to be dismissed as a fringe group of people, because clearly it's not. We need a new name for it. We need a new name for the mainstream media. I call, I've always called it the lamestream media, all right, because these people are pretty lame. 
But we need to use these names on a regular basis and, again, drive it into the conversation. We need thereby to marginalize the faux newses, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, the CBSs, NBCs, and so on and so forth that were so blatantly behind Hillary Clinton and so blatantly trying to avoid the issues of corruption there because they know that that corruption doesn't stop with the Clintons. It goes to other big families on the other side of the aisle. Okay. So we need new names for the media, both the alternative media and the uh, lamestream media. I, I would suggest free media for the alternative uh, media or individual freedom media or something along that line. And for the, the lamestream media, let's call it what it is. It's the globalist corporate media. All right. The global corporatist media elite. I don't even like the term elite. Let's call them what they are, oligarchs. Uh, or the global corporatist minority media. In other words, we need to start thinking now on what we are going to to and how we are going to refer to these people, that needs to be driven into the conversation. If we do not take these steps now, this is just going to be another hiccup, and we're going to return to the bad old days of the Obamas and the Bushes. I don't think any of us wants that. All right, so that's my views of the election. I'm sure I'm going to get lots of angry hate mail out there from a certain segment of people. I don't care. Those are my views. I, I hope uh, that most of you enjoyed them. Bye-bye, everybody. God bless, and we've got work to do, so I'll see you on the flip side.